Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a selection of thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free audiobook. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast so I can afford half-decent music for my episodes. Support your favorite podcast and get a book of your choice. What's not to love? My recommendation today is extremely story-relevant for this episode on medieval military history. I'm going with The Norman Conquest, The Battle of Hastings and the Fall of Anglo-Saxon England by Mark Morris. This is an outstanding account of William the Conqueror and his invasion of England, all the big events of 1066, one of the pivotal years of European history. It is awesome, bloody, well-researched, well-written, and free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash Pod. On with the show. The Year 1135 The place, medieval England. King Henry I is dead, sending his kingdom into a succession crisis. Stephen and Matilda, the grandchildren of William the Conqueror, wage a civil war for the throne. Their struggle will come to be known as the Anarchy. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 43, House of the Conqueror. I don't know if you can believe it, but this is our first trip to the European Middle Ages. Today we're going to go back to England and France in the 12th century and explore the many fun nuances of medieval warfare through the lens of a great civil war for the future of England and Europe. We got knights and castles and kings and queens and all that fun stuff. Get hyped. Now, Before we really get rolling, I have to address a couple of terms. Words like medieval, middle ages, feudalism, chivalry, words that are the center of long and often very contentious debate among historians. Like, no one can agree on when the middle ages began or ended. No one is sure what feudalism was exactly or what did and didn't apply as feudalism. What I will say above all, these were not the dark ages. Historians hate that term. As we will see, the men and women of 12th century England were not stupid, they were not ignorant, and they weren't really much worse than people before or after them. The notion of medieval Europe as uniquely horrible compared to other time periods is a myth. A myth that modern fantasy literature and TV has helped perpetuate. But we'll get to that in just a second. And one very big thing we have to keep in mind... Middle Ages, or medieval, is a very imprecise term. It refers to almost a thousand years of history, from around 500 to around 1500 AD. A lot happened in those thousand years. The 1500 looked nothing like 500. So what I say about medieval warfare today doesn't hold true for all the time periods. We'll be focusing on the mid-12th century, the era of the Crusades, essentially. But medieval warfare is a much bigger and broader topic than just what I'm covering today. There was a lot of evolution, there was a lot of change in weaponry and tactics and technology, all this stuff that I can't get into today. So before we go any further, guys, this is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. We're about to get medieval on your butts, but that's not really as bad as it sounds. Podcast is still PG-13, language is clean, content is not. 
there's some mention of castration, and because it somehow ends up being funny, I'm going to keep doing it. Um, all my sources, some maps, some images will be on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com, so if you want them, that's where they are. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. I'm going to be honest with y'all. There are two reasons I decided to do this episode. First, I realize that I haven't talked about medieval Europe at all in this podcast, and it's one of my favorite time periods, so I figured it was time. The second reason is that I'm a sellout, fickle and faithless, an absolute trend chaser. So I recently watched the, the hit HBO show House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones prequel series. In all its amazing acting and costume design and intrigue and CGI dragons and, um, more than your usual amount of incest for television. I was like an episode in when I said out loud to my family, yeah, this is based on the anarchy. Lots of folks know that George R. R. Martin's epic fantasy series Game of Thrones is largely based on a real-life English medieval conflict from the 1400s, known as the Wars of the Roses. You might not know that the prequel, House of the Dragon, is based on the events of an earlier English civil war, from the 1100s, called the Anarchy. So I figured I want to talk about medieval warfare anyway. Let's tell the real-life story of the House of the Conqueror. Today's episode discusses a civil war that began in 1135 when King Henry I, last surviving son of William the Conqueror, died without any legitimate sons. A succession crisis erupted between his daughter, Matilda, who was supposed to inherit, and his nephew, Stephen, who seized the throne instead. Cue almost 20 years of civil war. I'm going to tell this story in all its loving and downright weird detail, because sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. And we're going to learn a bit about medieval warfare along the way. So I'm going to stop our narrative here and there to explain certain things about battles or sieges or castles or the nature of politics and power in this time period, especially the nature of power when it came to gender. As we will see, women played a very significant role in medieval military history, one that doesn't often get the attention it deserves. While I will be focusing on various aspects of medieval warfare, I'm just going to stop here and there and explain explain medieval politics or society or culture, and how they intersected with that warfare. Finally, I am going to make this as dramatic as possible. I'm going to emphasize the fact that these are cousins and brothers and nephews and uncles beating the ever-living crap out of each other just to keep things interesting. Like many medieval conflicts, the anarchy was at heart a big family drama, and we know what a train wreck those can be. Today, we'll be talking about the civil war known as the English Anarchy, how the death of King Henry I of England sparked a civil war between two possible successors, his nephew Stephen and his daughter Matilda. We're going to go through a whole bunch of events from like 1066 to 1155 AD, though we're going to fast forward to that first portion pretty quickly. But we're also going to stop a bunch of times along the way to point out various aspects and details of medieval politics and medieval warfare. We'll find out how this war ended, rather anticlimactically, but that's part of the story too. The end of this war doesn't make a very good novel. There's no big epic battle. In fact, the lack of a big epic battle is one of the defining features of medieval warfare. And at the end, I will tell you why it matters. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. Because this is an epic journey into a past that won't always seem so distant, there will be breaks. These are your chance to pause, patch up your drywall, spread some de-icer on your driveway. I know I'll be doing that. Do the thing you need to do. 
So pull on your padded shirt, then grab your squire. You'll need him to help with your chainmail. That stuff never sits right when you put it on yourself. Mount up, hold your lance tightly, and set off at a trot. Pick a side, the king or the empress, because both of them have called you out on campaign. Before we get to Stephen and Matilda and the Civil War for the English throne, we have to start with how their family got that throne. We gotta start with Grandpa, William the Conqueror, the original Stormin Norman. You're like James, what is a Norman? Glad you asked. In 911 AD, a group of Vikings led by a warlord named Rollo settled down in northern France after pledging fealty to the King of France. They were called the Northmen, or the Normans, and their new territory became Normandy. Rollo was the first Duke of Normandy, the founder of what became the House of the Conqueror. The Normans went from Viking to French very quickly. They started speaking French and wearing French clothes and adopting French military practices like the castle and the armored knight. Pretty much all the main characters of this episode are Normans, and they all speak French. They don't speak English. <laughs> But the Normans are noteworthy for the outsized role they played in medieval history, because they were always fighting somebody. One medieval chronicler said, Being warlike descendants of the Danes, the Normans are ignorant of the ways of peace and serve it unwillingly. The heavily armored Norman knight was the M1 Abrams tank of the High Middle Ages, and Norman knights popped up all over Europe and North Africa and the Middle East, fighting and burning and conquering like members of a medieval motorcycle gang. But one Norman stood above all, Rollo's great-great-great-grandson, William, Duke of Normandy. He was called William the Bastard, though not to his face. That might get you literally castrated. At one point, there was this town he was besieging where the besieged town made fun of his uh, illegitimate origins by hanging hides over the walls of the castle because William's mother had been the daughter of a tanner. When William captured the castle, he had them all blinded and castrated because that's just how William rolled. In 1066, William invaded England, defeating and killing the Anglo-Saxon King Harold II at the Battle of Hastings. On Christmas Day 1066, he had himself crowned King of England. William the Bastard no more. Now and for all time, he was William the Conqueror. William dominated his realms with an iron fist, crushing multiple rebellions. He introduced military innovations into England, like the castle, the heavily armored knight, and the feudal military system. His Norman followers formed an Anglo-Norman aristocracy whose descendants have ruled Britain ever since. He ordered a detailed survey of England compiled into the famous Doomsday Book. As ruler of both the wealthy Kingdom of England and the military powerhouse that was Normandy, William the Conqueror was one of the most powerful rulers of the Middle Ages. But even he couldn't control his own family. The House of Normandy was a dysfunctional, violent soap opera that constantly threatened to destroy everything the Conqueror had built. Before we get too deep into this, let's talk names. These days, 
Lots of parents like to give their kids unique names, sometimes to cringeworthy extremes. The Normans had the opposite problem. They had like five names. There are multiple Roberts and Henrys and Williams in this story, and worst of all, like all the women are Matilda. Like they're all named Matilda. So I'm going to use historical nicknames or nicknames I make up to tell all these jokers apart. Also drinking game. Every time I introduce a new Matilda, drink. Moving on. William the Conqueror and his wife Matilda of Flanders, drink, had three sons who lived to full adulthood. They were Robert, called Robert Curthose because he had short legs, William, called William Rufus for his red face, and Henry, called Henry Beauclerk because he could actually read and write, meaning he was a freaking nerd. It was relatively rare for a Norman noble to know how to read. The Conqueror himself was famously illiterate. But three sons spelled trouble because dividing up the inheritance was going to be an issue. This was a constantly recurring problem in medieval Europe. Whenever a monarch dies, hold your breath because odds are there's going to be a succession crisis. Many of us know that inheritance disputes bring out the worst in people. All the relatives dividing up grandpa's power tools and grandma's china cabinet. Now imagine the inheritance is a kingdom because political power in this period was personal and proprietary. The Kingdom of England and the Duchy of Normandy were personal property, fundamentally no different than Grandpa's circular saw or Grandma's teapot. Now, later on in history, there would be established precedent in law for who inherited what. But in this period, the 11th century, those precedents weren't really set in stone, and there was more than one competing legal system like Salic law or some other kind of law that people might use. So it was not at all clear who took priority if there was no legitimate son, or if there was more than one legitimate son. So when William the Conqueror died in 1087, his body wasn't even cold before all three of his sons were trying to bash each other's heads in. The Conqueror's will gave Normandy to Robert Curthose, England to William Rufus, who became King William II, and a bag of gold to Henry. Youngest son gets the shaft, sucks kid, good luck. But each of the three sons wanted it all. And surprisingly, it was Henry, the kid who got almost nothing, who ended up victorious. The civil war between the brothers lasted 20 years, off and on fighting between constantly shifting alliances. Robert and Henry ganged up on William, Robert and William against Henry, William and Henry against Robert. The fighting seemed to end when Robert went on the First Crusade in 1096, but while he was gone, something crazy happened. On August 2nd, 1100, King William II went hunting in England's new forest with some friends, including his dear younger brother Henry. But somehow, William ended up with an arrow in his lung and dead. Now, Hunting accidents were super common in the Middle Ages. There had originally been a fourth brother, Richard, who had died in a hunting accident. But a lot of people find this accident super suspicious. Because younger brother Henry was super suspiciously quick to act. He seized the royal treasury at Winchester and had himself crowned King Henry I of England, all within 48 hours. Now, according to a mutual agreement that the two older brothers had had with each other, Robert was supposed to receive England if William died without an heir. That was the will. But Henry was on the spot and seized power while Robert was still away on crusade. This is another big thing about medieval inheritance disputes. Being on the spot was better than being in the will. 
The law doesn't matter. What you can enforce matters. Henry seized the crown of England because he was in the right place at the right time and acted quickly. Then, a few years later in 1106, Henry invaded Normandy and defeated and captured his big brother Robert at the Battle of Tonchebras, ending the brothers' civil wars. Henry had reunited his father's lands and was now Henry I, King of England and Duke of Normandy. And if William had been the conqueror, Henry was the consolidator. He had always been more managerial, the math nerd type, to his brother's high school quarterback types. Henry built a strong royal administration. He established the Exchequer, which is the financial system that still rules England today. And his rule brought peace and prosperity, as well as law and order. It was an era of stability after decades of chaos. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle describes Henry's reign. He was a good man and was held in great awe. In his time, no man dared do wrong against another. He made peace for man and beast. No man dared say anything but good to whoever carried their load of gold and silver. Reading between the lines, that quote tells us something else about Henry. Henry was very just, but also very cruel. Very early in his reign, Henry declared that anyone caught debasing his coins would be castrated and have their right hands chopped off. And he followed through on this. That was one big incident where he found that his coins were being debased. And just to be safe, he went to every mentor in England and had them all castrated and all had their right hands cut off. But in this time period, people saw this as a plus. To be an effective medieval king in their minds, you had to be a little evil. So when Henry wasn't ordering people castrated, by the way, he was sowing his royal oats. Henry I was one of the most legendary horn dogs of medieval history, fathering at least 22 illegitimate children. 22! Three of which were named Matilda, drink, drink, drink. But here's the thing about Henry, guys. However brother fighting and cruel and adulterous and castrating he might have been, Henry loved his children. All of them. Unlike many medieval rulers, he acknowledged all his illegitimate children and had them raised at court. He did right by them as a father, by medieval standards. He gave the boys lands and titles and the girls good marriages to eligible nobles, incidentally meaning that like half the European nobility was descended from Henry I. Mo most of these illegitimate children took the surname Fitzroy, which means son of the king. But believe it or not, Henry didn't have enough kids because despite a Chuck E. Cheese's worth of adultery babies, Henry and his wife Matilda of Scotland, drink, had only one legitimate son. This was William Aetheling, Aetheling being an Anglo-Saxon term for prince. Luckily, William Aetheling was brave, handsome, charismatic, and smart. The apple of his father's eye, a model prince, clearly destined to be a great king. Henry and his wife also had a legitimate daughter, Matilda. Drink. This is our Matilda, one of our two main characters today. Henry made sure that Matilda got the best marriage alliance of all. He married her off to the Holy Roman Emperor Henry V. The Emperor was 28, Matilda was 12. Yeah. Yeah. Not great for Matilda. Welcome to the Middle Ages. So Henry I had it all. He had a stable, peaceful realm, he had a solid and capable heir, he had an alliance with the Holy Roman Emperor, and he had a lot and lot and lot of kids that loved him. 
In 1119, Henry defeated King Louis VI of France in the Battle of Bramule, securing Normandy from any threat by the French crown. It seemed like everything was going Henry's way. The future looked bright for the House of the Conqueror. 1120 was going to be a year of celebration. Henry was traveling back to England from Normandy after defeating the French, and rumor had it that he would be rewarding all his young followers with land and titles for their glorious military service. The flower of the Anglo-Norman nobility, the bravest and noblest and most promising young men and women of the realm, gathered around the handsome young prince, William Aethling. The king's court moved to the Norman port of Barfleur, where they prepared to cross the English Channel. One of the local shipwrights, a man named Thomas Fitzstephen, approached King Henry. Thomas told the king about how his father, Stephen, had captained the ship that carried William the Conqueror over the Channel in 1066. Thomas would be honored if his ship could carry Henry. Henry said, sorry man, I'm booked, my travel plans are already well set in stone, but you know what? I bet the kids, the youngsters, they'd love to go on your ship. And it was a lovely ship. A new, sleek, sporty vessel painted bright white. History remembers it as the White Ship. So as Henry sailed off that evening, the partying youngsters began to board the White Ship. William was under peer pressure from all his cool friends to keep the party going. Like, dude, bring out the good stuff. So he ordered a bunch of wine to be rolled out for his friends. Good wine. King's wine. And then the ship's crew were like, hey, can we have some of that? William was like, hell yeah, the more the merrier. So as the white ship prepared to set sail on November 25th, 1120, almost all the passengers and almost all the crew were drunk. And you know what they say, alcohol and water don't mix. A channel crossing was no small task, even in good weather, and some passengers smelled disaster. One of them was King Henry's nephew, Stephen of Blois, the son of the conqueror's daughter, Adela. Stephen was either worried by the drunken state of the crew or just really sick from all the binge drinking. So Stephen stumbled off the white ship probably to puke his guts out just before the, the ship cast off. The fact that Stephen wasn't on board the white ship that night and that William Aethling was would change the history of medieval Europe forever. The white ship was a great vessel, the weather was clear, and the crew were experienced. But the night was dark and the passengers were wild. The young nobles kept yelling for the ship to go faster, 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 and the crewmen obliged. The captain was drunk, the rowers were drunk, and the helmsman was drunk, and he didn't see the rock. The white ship was about a mile out from bar floor when she suddenly lurched to the side. A massive jagged rock had sheared her hull apart. The sailors tried to pull the ship off the rock, but they were all drunk, and they only made it worse. The cold water of the channel rushed into the rift. The white ship split and rolled on her side into the sea. The screaming passengers fell into the cold, dark waters of the English Channel. The women died quickly, their enormous dresses dragging them down into the fathoms. The men would have lasted longer, but few of them knew how to swim, and the frigid waters would have induced shock very rapidly. The Norman youths, the grandchildren of the Conqueror's generation, sank to the bottom. William Aethling's bodyguards hustled him onto the only boat. They had to save the prince, the heir to the throne. But as they rowed away, on the verge of escaping, William heard a cry in the dark. It was his sister, Matilda, 
one of his father's many illegitimate daughters, a charming, smiling girl who had just gotten married and never hurt anyone. She was screaming for her brother to come save her. William ordered the lifeboat to turn around. But as they returned to the wreck, the survivors bobbing in the water clung to the boat, trying to save themselves. Soon it overturned, and the grandson of the Conqueror, the pride and joy of his father and the whole Norman realm, vanished into the water. One of the passengers, a butcher named Berthold, clung for life onto one of the broken masts. He saw it all. Thomas Fitzstephen came swimming up, panicking, asking if anyone had seen the prince. When he was told that William Aetheling had drowned, Thomas allowed himself to sink into the sea. It was better than whatever King Henry would do to him. Berthold was the only survivor of the white ship. No shipwreck, not even the Titanic, has had such a dramatic effect on the history of England. The best and brightest of the Norman nobility, the flower of their youth, had vanished in the English Channel. There is an entire Wikipedia article just for the victims of the white ship disaster, like a list. King Henry lost three children, including two of his Fitzroys, but one most devastating of all, his pride and joy, William Aetheling, heir to the throne. The chronicler William of Malmesbury described the death of the young prince as he imagined it. The head which should have worn a crown of gold was suddenly dashed against the rocks. Instead of wearing embroidered robes, he floated naked in the waves. And instead of ascending a lofty throne, he found his grave in the bellies of fishes at the bottom of the sea. Jeez, William, <laughs> tone it down. Chroniclers describe the king screaming and throwing himself on the ground when he received the horrible news. He was in bed for weeks, just grieving. Henry might have been one of the strongest, most respected, most feared monarchs in Europe, but he was a man who, above all, loved his children. He wasn't the only one grieving. Almost everyone in the aristocracy had lost somebody. But despite his sorrow, Henry had to buck up. He had to figure out the succession because now there was no clear heir to the throne. And that uncertainty had everyone clenching up just a bit. They knew what an unclear successor meant. Destruction, ruin, civil war, anarchy. Henry chose a new heir, but his decision was controversial. She was brave and clever with a strong character and a surprising amount of experience leading and managing a realm. The problem was the pronoun she. Henry's daughter Matilda had spent 12 years married to Holy Roman Emperor Henry V, but she hadn't just sat around looking pretty. Medieval noblewomen played a very large role in their households and in their husband's administration. Whenever Henry was away, Matilda was his regent. When Henry was off in Germany, Matilda was ruling Italy in his name as a teenager. And she was really good at it. Matilda had a talent for governance. But when the emperor died in 1125, Matilda was widowed and childless at the age of 24. She returned to her father's court in Normandy, but she would refer to herself as Empress Matilda until the day she died. So when more Matildas pop up later in the story, I'll refer to her as the Empress Matilda just to make sure she's distinctive. And Matilda was honestly a baller. She was a Norman empress, a granddaughter of the Conqueror, and she had all of Grandpa's personal characteristics. Backbone, courage, good judgment, iron will. She probably would have been an excellent ruler. But Matilda was not popular with the Anglo-Norman nobility. 
Part of this was her character. She seems to have been very domineering and forceful. And part of it was that she'd just been away from England for a long time. She hadn't been around for a lot of big stuff that had happened recently. She had still been in Germany when the white ship sank. But a big part of it was that she was a woman. Medieval society did see it as acceptable for women to exercise male power. Women could rule, dispense justice, manage the funds, even conduct military strategy. But only if they were exercising authority on behalf of a man, a husband or a son. Matilda, if she became queen, would be exercising power on her own behalf. Henry knew Matilda would face an uphill battle when he died. He loved his children, that's why he chose Matilda to be his heir, and he wanted to make sure things were set up for her when he died. So he made all his nobles swear, in front of both him and Matilda, that they would accept her as the rightful heir. He made them swear not once, but twice, in two separate ceremonies. Like, listen losers, you're all swearing in front of God, and most importantly me, that you will recognize Matilda as my heir when I die. And they swore, grudgingly. But at the first ceremony, two of Henry's closest followers got in a fight over who got to swear first. One of these men was Robert Fitzroy, Earl of Gloucester, Henry's oldest illegitimate son. Robert of Gloucester was the most powerful landowner in England, an experienced military commander, and unquestioningly loyal to his father. He would have been a good king if he wasn't daddy's adultery baby. The other guy, Robert's rival, long-term rival, was Stephen of Blois, the guy who had been puking his guts out when the white ship sank. Stephen was the son of the Conqueror's daughter, Adela. He was, so he was also a grandson of the Conqueror. He was ambitious and pretty popular. You could have a beer with him. He was good at backslapping, but his biggest problem was his lack of backbone. Keep an eye on these two guys. They'll be crossing swords soon enough. Henry secured Matilda's position further by marrying her to a powerful French nobleman, Count Joffrey of Anjou. Joffrey was 15, Matilda was 27. Again, not great for Matilda. <laughs> they did not like each other. Joffrey and Matilda had, had a famously hostile marriage, but Joffrey's power and resources were a valuable asset, and Matilda reluctantly agreed to the match. The couple had three very healthy sons, and then Matilda was like, okay, kid, don't freaking touch me again, and Joffrey was like, gladly. <laughs> Not a happy couple. They worked together for their sons, that was their common interest, and for no other reason. Oh, one more thing. Technically, Joffrey's family, the House of Anjou, were usually called the Angevins, or the Angevins, but they had another name. Joffrey was fond of wearing a bright yellow flower in his ginger hair, a flower known in French as the Plantagenista, which gives us the dynastic name Plantagenet, or Plantagenet. Henry was doing all this, making people promise to support Matilda arranging a powerful but unhappy marriage, because he knew, as they all knew, that when he died, what he said wouldn't matter anymore. Look what happened when the Conqueror died. Look what happened when William Rufus died. They had plans for their inheritance, and everybody ignored them. What mattered wasn't who was in the will, but who was on the spot. Not the law, but the sword. Everything was primed and ready for a succession crisis. And it came when King Henry decided to have a midnight snack. Medieval Europeans had a weird thing for dying in bizarre ways. You could do a show, A Thousand Ways to Die in Medieval Europe, and you'd never run out of content. Pope Adrian IV choked on a fly in his wine. 
Martin of Aragon, laughed himself to death. Byzantine Emperor Basil I was caught in a deer's antlers while hunting and dragged 16 miles to his death. Two separate French kings, Louis III and Charles VIII, hit their heads on the same door frame and centuries apart, they hit their heads so hard that they freaking died. So King Henry I was in good company when he died from a surfeit of lampreys. King Henry was 66 or 67 years old, sources differ, in November 1135, when he decided to indulge in a forbidden snack, one of his favorite dishes, lamprey pie. Lampreys are a small jawless fish, closely resembling eels, with tiny rows of teeth inside their sucker-like heads. And for whatever reason, they were regarded as a delicacy in medieval Europe. Now, Lamprey pie was a very rich food, somewhat bad for the system, and had to be cooked thoroughly because lampreys were somewhat toxic. And Henry's doctors had told him multiple times, Yo, your majesty, this is not healthy. Do not eat any more lampreys. If we tell you nothing else, don't eat any more of these things. But Henry figured, eh, what would a bit hurt? Doctors don't know what they're talking about. So Henry ate lampreys that night. He ate a lot of them an unreasonable amount. The chroniclers call it a surfeit of lampreys. Henry ate so many eel monsters that it made him incredibly sick, and as the days went on, it didn't get better. After less than a week of this lamprey pie binge, it was clear that he was on his way out. After receiving absolution and confessing his sins, King Henry I died on December 1st, 1135. Death by forbidden snack. Nasty eel pie. King Henry's body wasn't even cold before everything went to hell. His death, like the deaths of his father and his brother, triggered a succession crisis. Writing in the 19th century, English historians would call it the anarchy. But people of the time, remembering the disaster that had caused all of this, just called it the shipwreck. King Henry I's death on December 1st, 1135, initiated the period that English historians, since the 19th century, call the Anarchy. It wasn't called that at the time. Henry had ruled with such a tight grip for 35 years that when he was gone, people went kind of nuts. The chronicler Orderic Vitalis describes it like this. For on the very same day that the Normans heard that their firm ruler had died, they rushed out hungrily like ravening wolves to plunder and ravage mercilessly. John of Worcester said this. After Henry's burial, it was not long before there was much discord throughout England and Normandy, and the bonds of peace were torn. Each man was against his fellow. The strong violently oppressed the weak. Basically, all these ultra-violent Norman nob nobility were like, King's dead. We can do whatever we want until there's a new king. And they legitimately behaved like this. So there was this very brief window of time when there was no king and everyone was running around taking advantage of the interregnum. One man was running faster than anyone else. 
Stephen of Blois learned of Henry's death early. He was in his wife's territory of Boulogne, a key crossing point on the French side of the English Channel, placing him in prime position to strike before Matilda down in Anjou got the news. Just like Henry when his brother William II had died, Stephen knew that being on the spot was better than being in the will. If he acted fast, he could take the throne for himself before anyone else, especially Matilda, could react. Stephen took a fast boat to London, where the townspeople acclaimed him and declared him king. He was popular. Then he seized the royal treasury at Winchester. But, but then Stephen faced his next big hurdle. His coronation couldn't take place until he had the approval of the church. Gotta hold up here a bit and talk about the Catholic Church. One big thing that Game of Thrones doesn't really emphasize in its fictionalized medieval world is the dominant role of the religion as a medieval institution. The church was maybe the core component of medieval society. It had enormous authority, especially moral authority. See, the church's support was vital for a ruler's legitimacy. If you didn't have the blessing, or worse, if you were excommunicated by the pope, that painted the big target on your back for your rivals, for your superiors, and even your subordinates. Your nobles could rebel against you, and people could declare war on you with the blessing of God. People lost kingdoms and thrones in the Middle Ages by making the church mad. All the time. So unless the Archbishop of Canterbury, England's top churchman, sanctified his rule, Stephen wasn't really king yet. And the Archbishop was like, hey guy, King Henry said Matilda was his heir, and you guys all agreed on that. Twice. Stephen was like, uh, well, you see, Henry changed his mind on his deathbed. Yeah, see, I have a witness right here. Turned out later that the so-called witness was nowhere near King Henry's deathbed, but it seemed legit. And Stephen's brother Henry, the powerful Bishop of Winchester, vouched for him. He was like, yep, big bro is totally legit. He's good to go. So the Archbishop agreed to the anointment. Stephen became King of England and Duke of Normandy, just as Matilda was finding out that her dad was dead. It was a fait accompli. Now, Stephen never could have done this without the support of most of the nobility, despite the fact that they had all promised, shoot, even Stephen had promised, twice to support Matilda's claim. So why did these guys all abandon their promises so quickly? Well, again, Matilda was a woman. It wasn't unheard of for women to rule in medieval Europe. There are some cases from Spain and Italy in this time period, but it wasn't normal, and there was no legal precedent for it in England and Normandy. People weren't even really sure what they would call Matilda. Queen was a title that went to the wife of the king. It wasn't the title for a ruler in their own right. Stephen's story about Henry's deathbed switcheroo was an excuse that I bet few people believed, but lots of people found convenient. And they also claimed that Henry had extracted their promises under duress, like under the threat of force, which, considering his reputation, was not entirely unbelievable. And then there was Stephen, a grandson of the Conqueror, charming and popular, a proven warrior. His wife Matilda, drink, owned the county of Boulogne, England's made trade route to the continent. His brother was Henry, the Bishop of Winchester, one of England's most important churchmen. And most of all, he was on the spot. So almost everyone in England accepted Stephen's sketchy claim to the throne at first. But if Stephen thought his coup was a done deal, he would have to think again. 
Empress Matilda was still down in her husband's territory of Anjou, south of Normandy. She was actually heavily pregnant with her third son at the time that her dad died, which may explain why she didn't move quickly and Stephen did. But Matilda had no intention of letting her bratty little cousin take what was rightfully hers, or just as importantly, what her sons should rightfully inherit from her. Matilda wasn't just angry on her own behalf, though she was, she was also furious with full mama bear rage. So in 1136, Joffrey of Anjou and Matilda, jointly, led their armies from Anjou into Normandy. Matilda had turned to war to assert her rights and the rights of her children. Stephen, back in England, was facing uprisings by his nobles. Matilda's uncle David I, King of Scotland, was invading from the north on her behalf. Henry I's era of peace had come to an end. The anarchy was underway. And now that we're finally fighting, let's talk about medieval warfare. Just a reminder, I'm describing warfare in the 11th and 12th centuries in Western Europe. It looked different in other centuries in other parts of the world. And it looked different from most modern depictions, including Game of Thrones. Pretty much every movie and TV show get medieval warfare wrong, some more wrong than others. You guys aren't ready for my Braveheart rant. When William the Conqueror invaded England in 1066, he brought some military innovations with him from the European continent, like William was the one to introduce these to England in force. These innovations had a decisive impact on warfare in 11th and 12th century England. They were the armored knight, the castle, and a military political structure that is often called feudalism. The knight was the definitive warrior of the Middle Ages. In our period, the, Nor the Norman knight was still wearing chainmail, a big heavy iron shirt that draped over him like a bathrobe, and he wore a conical helmet with a long nose piece on his head. Big fancy plate armor, those famous suits of armor you see in museums, that is several centuries away. That is a Renaissance era set of armor. Our boy was in chainmail. It was flexible and provided very good protection against slashing and piercing damage, especially when it was worn over a, cloth, a heavy cloth shirt that would blunt the impact of anything hitting the chainmail. The knight carried what is called an arming sword with about a two and a half foot blade and weighed about 2.4 pounds. Swords were pretty light and he also had a kite shaped shield. But the knight derived his status from the fact that he was a mounted warrior and when mounted, his primary weapon was the lance. The knight was a much more effective mounted warrior than any of his cavalry predecessors. Most cavalrymen in the past had used the lance, yes, but they'd used it in an overhand grip, like raising above their heads to pierce their opponents from above. Knights in the 12th century tended to couch their lance in the armpit, transmitting the full momentum of man and horse into a single very deadly point. This hadn't been feasible in previous centuries because there was just too much impact if you tried this. You'd be lifted off your horse by the impact, that's why you stabbed from overhead. But that was before two very recent innovations in medieval Europe, the stirrup and the high-backed saddle. These gave the riders a more stable seat, able to withstand higher shock and stay mounted. These innovations turned the Western European knight into the military juggernaut of the 12th century. They were a menace on any battlefield. There are Byzantine and Islamic military manuals from this time period with specific advice for fighting these guys. Like, these guys are tough, here's how you beat them. They were that dangerous. 
But if the knight was effective, he was also expensive. A lot of resources went into arming, equipping, and training him. Resources that had to come from the land in a society where cash was scarce. Land was the primary source of wealth in medieval Europe. This is where the knights got the resources to be knights. And this is where the social system called feudalism comes in. Feudalism is a very, very controversial subject. There's lots of debate over what was and wasn't feudalism, whether it even really existed as a concept. But this is what we're calling feudalism in this episode. Long story short, when William conquered England, he divided the land up between all his Norman subordinates, the earls and the counts and the barons, or religious officials like bishops and abbots. In return for receiving this land and becoming vassals, they owed the king military service. They had to supply him with men and resources based on how much land they held. The very basic concept that we call feudalism. These guys are paying taxes by providing soldiers. And you can look at old medieval charters where the king laid out in detail what he expected from each of his vassals. Let's say, hypothetically, the Earl of Chester has X amount of land valued at so-and-so price, so he's responsible for, for providing, say, 40 armored knights and 600 infantry if called upon. This is the reason William the Conqueror had the Doomsday Book written, that very thorough survey of all the land in England, so he would know exactly how many soldiers all his vassals owed him. But these were the vassal soldiers and the vassal's knights, only temporarily in the king's service. As you can see, feudalism was very personal and very property-based, and this translates to how medieval politics and military affairs worked in general. Politics were personal, armies were personal, warfare was personal. This personalization of politics and warfare is the really striking difference between the Middle Ages and the present. There wasn't a state, per se. The kingdom was a personal possession. The army was a personal possession. Under feudalism, there was no English army. Medieval armies were the Duke's army, or the King's army, or the Earl's army. They were personal armies. William the Conqueror's final big military innovation was the castle. England had had fortified towns before, during the Anglo-Saxon period when they were fighting the Vikings, but the castle was a continental innovation. Castles were purpose-built fortresses designed to control the surrounding territory, to serve as an emergency fortification against any attack. In the early days of the Norman Conquest, most of these castles were built to prevent Anglo-Saxon uprisings. The castle was the ultimate pivot point of medieval warfare, because land was the primary source of wealth. To win the war, you had to control the land, and to control the land, you had to control the castle. Norman castles varied in size and complexity. Most of them were the very simple Mott and Bailey design. The Normans dug a big ditch, a moat, and used the earth to raise a large mound called the Mott, with the small wooden keep on top of it. Then they ringed the Mott with a wooden palisade called the Bailey. This was crude. It was very simple, very... just a wooden castle on a mound with a little fence around it. But it had two major benefits. First, very quick and easy to build. Some Mott and Baileys could be built in only a week. Second, even a Mott and Bailey was very difficult to capture. They took a long time. Siege engines weren't really that advanced yet. Your knight can be as powerful as you want him to be, but a thousand knights arrive at the Mott and Bailey, how are they going to get in? And God help you if it was one of the fancy new stone castles. But handing out all this land and all these castles to your nobles was a double-edged sword. 
This empowered your vassals and made rebellions very dangerous. Castles were really hard to take, knights were really hard to defeat in battle, and thanks to this feudal system, individual lords could sometimes have even more power than the monarch. The power of monarchs in the Middle Ages was very limited. It was limited based on how much land they had versus how much land their vassals had. For instance, the kings of France were famously weak in this time period, in the 1100s. They had lots of powerful vassals that they couldn't really control and were honestly stronger than them. So there were a few key rules of medieval warfare. Based on all this I've just told you, few key rules and how people conducted medieval warfare. Number one, warfare revolved around taking and defending castles. This was a hard, time-consuming task, especially in, say, England 1135, because there were a lot of castles. Big, small, wood, stone, just a bunch of freaking castles. The supremacy of castles meant that most combat and medieval warfare, like the vast, vast majority, revolved around sieges. And that brings us to a second rule. Big battles, large battles, were very, very rare. The anarchy lasted for about 18 years, and there were only two large-scale battles. Because battles were risky. Lots of things could happen. You could be making years of progress and lose it all in an afternoon because something went wrong. Plus, battles weren't usually that decisive. Even if you defeat the enemy army, he still has like 20 castles you have to go take. The only way a battle was usually decisive was if you managed to kill or capture the enemy leader. But there was also a chance that he captured you. William the Conqueror got very lucky at the Battle of Hastings. He was losing that battle until the Anglo-Saxon King Harold II died. And that was it. That battle's over. If Harold had retreated, or if Harold had not fought the battle at all, William the Conqueror may not have conquered England. There was all, lots of medieval people also saw the outcomes of battles as the judgment of God. So if you weren't confident about your relationship with the big man, maybe don't push your luck. This is, this is something that a lot of military historians, modern military historians, don't understand about medieval warfare. They see a bunch of wars with no real battles, and they're like, oh, nothing was happening. No, a good medieval commander avoided battle whenever possible. Just too much risk and too little benefit. If you're risking a battle, that means you're super confident, you're super desperate, or you're stupid. Rule number three, armies were small. Medieval commanders valued quality over quantity. You don't want mobs of peasants trying to storm the castle you're besieging. Those guys are worse than useless. On the logistical side, they're just more mouths to feed. Medieval armies consisted of more than just knights. The majority were usually infantrymen, like spearmen and archers. But compared to times past and future, medieval armies were tiny. William the Conqueror brought 10,000 men to the Battle of Hastings. That's a drop in the water in, like, the American Civil War, but that was a very large army for the time period. In the Battle of Bremule in 1119, where Henry I defeated King Louis VI of France, each side had about 500 knights, and that was it. Very small armies. Rule number four. These factors all made medieval commanders very cautious, patient, and risk-averse. Wars lasted a long time, with each side carefully taking this castle or that castle, avoiding battle, trying to gain a long-term advantage. And this allowed lots of time for things to change outside the military context. Someone might die, an alliance might shift, the church might broker a peace settlement. Medieval warfare was often indecisive, but that didn't mean it wasn't destructive. So, back to the story. 
The first few years of the Anarchy didn't see a whole lot of fun action. Matilda and her boy toy, Geoffrey of Anjou, invaded Normandy and began the slow, tedious process of conquering all its castles. Apparently, Joffrey's troops behaved pretty badly in the region, doing nothing to endear himself or his wife to the locals. But King Stephen was having problems of his own, and they were mostly his own fault. Stephen lacked the political instincts or the ruthless efficiency of his uncle Henry. He just couldn't politic his way out of a paper bag. So after the honeymoon wore off, he began to make a lot of his new vassals mad. And one of his biggest mistakes, which we'll see time and again today, was in being too nice at the wrong times. In 1136, a nobleman named Baldwin de Redvers rose up against Stephen's new regime. Stephen, who was a good military commander, give him credit for that, quickly laid siege and captured Baldwin's stronghold at Exeter. But then Stephen decided to forgive Baldwin and set him and his entire garrison free. Stephen's allies were astonished at how naive this was, because Baldwin de Redvers immediately ran off to the Isle of Wight, where he raised another rebellion, and then eventually crossed over to Normandy and joined Matilda. Many of Stephen's nobles saw this kindness as weakness, like, this guy is letting rebels go free to cause more trouble. He's not laying down the law. Man, I remember Henry. Henry would have cut their nuts off. But then, Stephen pissed off the one person he should have bent over backwards to keep on his side, Robert, Earl of Gloucester. Robert, King Henry's oldest illegitimate son, was the most powerful landowner in both England and Normandy, with a massive power base around his castle at Bristol in western England. Bristol Castle was probably the strongest in the realm, an expensive, mighty stone fortress that it took years and lots of money to build. Robert of Gloucester was a skilled military leader, very popular across England. Now, when Stephen first took power, Robert hadn't said boo. But as the most powerful noble in the realm, Robert expected key positions in Stephen's court and on his council, and Stephen told him to buzz off. Robert and Stephen had been rivals for a long time, remember them elbowing each other aside to swear fealty to Matilda, ironically? And Robert always had a soft spot for his sister and felt really guilty about not helping her take the throne in 1136. So, Robert decided that enough was enough. In 1138, three years after Stephen's rise to power, Robert declared himself in rebellion against the crown, and he raised his banner in the name of his half-sister, the Empress Matilda. Robert's defection was critical. Matilda and Joffrey hadn't been making much headway in Normandy, and they didn't have enough support in England to really accomplish anything. That had all changed now. Robert's rebellion, the result of Stephen's political ineptitude, fanned the flames of the anarchy into a bonfire. Then there were the Scots. King David I of Scotland was Matilda's maternal uncle. He had been raised at Hen King Henry's court alongside both Matilda and Robert. So this is basically the old sandbox gang getting back together. But David wasn't invading England just to back up Matilda. He had designs on Northern England. He had already occupied Northumbria and was marching south with a large army to help his niece and to grab as much of Northern England as he could get his hands on. King David's Scottish army pillaged the land as it went, wreaking untold horrors on the people. Rule number five about medieval warfare was that it was devastating to the common people. The nobles on both sides of the anarchy were part of the Anglo-Norman aristocracy, an elite club, and they showed a lot of courtesy and respect to their fellow nobility. 
But these codes of conduct did not apply to the peasants and the commoners. They were basically enemy property, war resources, and that made them fair game. Attacking the land, destroying farms, burning crops, killing the villagers, that was just war. That was an accepted tactic on all sides. In war, in any war, the civilians always suffer the most. The ideas of chivalry that would come along later on the next century, they were, those were nice, but rarely observed. The knight of the 12th century was less the noble hero of medieval fantasies and more just a heavily armored thug in practice. The chronicler Richard of Hexham describes Scottish behavior in their invasion of Northern England. When they had arrived there, they destroyed by fire and sword. Sparing no rank, no age, no sex, no condition, they first massacred in the most barbarous manner possible children and kindred in the sight of their relatives, masters in sight of their servants, and servants in the sight of their masters, and husbands before the eyes of their wives. Any large army moving through a medieval countryside inevitably brought famine, slaughter, and devastation in its wake. The Anglo-Norman realm had enjoyed an age of 35 years of peace and quiet under Henry I, and the Scottish invasion, more than anything else, signaled the end of this era. And across the channel, Matilda was prepping to come to England and fight for her birthright. Stephen was discovering that keeping the throne was much harder than taking it. The two cousins, grandchildren of the Conqueror, were about to tear England apart. King Stephen was in serious trouble in the year 1138. He was losing support across the realm. Robert of Gloucester, his most powerful vassal, was in open rebellion in Matilda's name. Joffrey and Matilda were conquering Normandy. But the biggest and most immediate danger came from King David I of Scotland and his invasion of Northern England. David had 16,000 men, a very, very large army for the time, and they had been ravaging their way south towards the major city of York. With King Stephen occupied fighting Robert in the south, the defense of Northern England fell to Thurston, the Archbishop of York. Thurston called all the lords of Northern England to arms and they gathered their forces. The English army numbered around 10,000 men under the command of Count William of Umal. It was time for one of the two big battles of the anarchy. I said before that medieval commanders only risked a battle if they were confident, desperate, or stupid. Well, today the Scots were confident, and the English were desperate. The English made their stand on a broad sloping hill near North Allerton, arranging their infantry in a dense phalanx formation, with long spears and a wall of round shields. Historians sometimes describe this as a special tactic that this or that group used, like the Greeks use a phalanx, the Anglo-Saxons used a phalanx. But the phalanx was the standard defensive tactic for infantry in the Middle Ages. It was simple, it was easy, and it freaking worked. It worked so well that a lot of the Anglo-Norman knights on the battlefield chose to fight with the phalanx. The English were rallied by their nobles and bishops who reminded them of their Norman heritage and that the Lord was on their side. 
They had mounted a massive ship's mast, like the mast of a ship. They'd mounted it on a cart and covered it with Christian banners to remind them what they were fighting for. The medieval Italian cities used this kind of thing all the time. They called it a carocchio standard, but it was rare this far north. This massive flagpole would give the battle its name, the Battle of the Standard. The Scottish army arrived on the foggy, humid morning of August 22, 1138. King David I and his son Prince Henry laid eyes on the massive English formation with its tall, fluttering standard and prepared to attack. But then the Galwegians, the wild tribes of southwestern Scotland, demanded that they get to attack first. What is it with Scottish clan chiefs and their pride getting all tangled up in battle plans? It would happen again 600 years later in the 45 and at Culloden. David agreed to let the Galwegians, unarmored, undisciplined light infantry, lead the infantry attack. This was a mistake. The Galwegians sprinted up the hill, screaming and stabbing and flashing their swords, But the English archers were waiting. Clouds of arrows rained down on the Scots, showering them as they made contact with the English phalanx. The Scots hacked at their foes, just a big thudding sound as metal met wood all along the line. But the infantry phalanx was used all across the world in so many different time periods for one very good reason. It freaking worked. A shield wall was virtually impenetrable by anything except a cavalry attack from the flank. Shredded by the English archers and stopped by the shield wall, the Galwegians broke and ran. The English let out a cheer beneath their standard. Then, led by the Norman knights in the front rank, the phalanx advanced down the slope. Prince Henry of Scotland led his armored knights in a charge, but the charge was met by a countercharge from the mounted English knights, who had been kept in reserve. The English phalanx rolled down the hill, moving slowly and steadily, driving everything before it. With both their infantry and cavalry attacks broken, the Scots retreated and the English knights pursued. The chronicler Richard of Hexham describes it this way. Wherever they were discovered, they were put to death like sheep for the slaughter, and thus, by the righteous judgment of God, those who had cruelly massacred multitudes were either dismembered and torn to pieces, or decayed and putrefied in the open air. So yeah, This is why medieval leaders were reluctant to risk a battle. The Scots had a bigger army, so on paper they should have won. But a battle is always a gamble, and in King David's case, a bad one. But the aftermath of the standard told a different story. David and Stephen signed a peace treaty later that year that left most of northern England under Scottish control despite their recent defeat. David I was basically on the sidelines for the rest of the anarchy, happy with the new lands he had conquered. But Stephen had given up so much in the treaty that it was hard to tell who had won the Battle of the Standard. Many English nobles were furious at Stephen for giving so much away for what they saw as more weakness. See, the military situation was the least of Stephen's problems. He was a decent general. Ever since he'd taken the throne, he'd been bouncing across England, stamping out small uprisings left and right. But politically, Stephen was always his own worst enemy. In 1138, Stephen decided to confiscate the castles and lands of three powerful bishops, pissing off the English religious establishment. One of these bishops was Roger of Salisbury, who had been King Henry's chancellor, his closest advisor, and had tried to serve Stephen the same way, but Stephen ended up stealing his castles. And at roughly the same time, the Archbishop of Canterbury died. Stephen's younger brother Henry, Bishop of Winchester, thought he would get the job. 
He had been a big part of Stephen's coup, after all. He felt like Big Brother owed him one. But Stephen basically laughed in his face and gave the job to someone else. So even as Stephen was winning sieges, burning Robert of Gloucester's lands, capturing castles, he was undermining his own rule by making everyone mad. Many of his supporters began to waver, and some even sent messages to Matilda, who decided that the time was finally right to cross the channel. Matilda had a good reason for waiting so long to come to England. She had been appealing her case to the Pope. This was common practice in medieval European diplomacy. The Church often functioned like a United Nations or a Court of Appeals, an independent party that tried to arbitrate international disputes. The Church was an international organ whose legitimacy most European rulers recognized. So you got a problem, they, multiple parties go to the Church and try to get the Pope to make a ruling one way or the other in their favor. Papal decrees were often vital to ending a major conflict. So in 1138, both Stephen and Matilda sent lawyers to argue their case before Pope Innocent II. I picture it as like an episode of Law and Order or Judge Judy. It's, this is like a custody battle, but the kids are England and Normandy. Who gets the kids? As it turned out, even if Matilda had the better argument, Stephen had the better lawyer, and the Pope sided with him. All this meant was that Matilda had made up her mind. Can't get my kingdom back that way. No one else is going to fight for my claims but me. It's time to go to England. On September 30th, 1139, Matilda landed in southern England with 140 knights and 3,000 infantry. She quickly moved to the castle of Arundel, where she became a guest of, her, of Adeliza of Louvain, her stepmother. Adeliza had married King Henry after the White Ship disaster in the hope of producing another son, but they, they had no children, otherwise Matilda wouldn't be in this situation. <laughs> Apparently Matilda and Adeliza got along very well, they were about the same age, which, yeah, you, your, your stepmom is about your, the same age as you. That's, that, welcome to the Middle Ages. Matilda's landing gave her supporters new hope, just as Stephen's popularity was at a low ebb. He had to act fast to crush this before it got out of control. So Stephen marched south and surrounded Arundel Castle, with Matilda trapped inside. It seemed like he had her within his grasp, but then his brother, Henry Bishop of Winchester, intervened. He said that laying hands on Matilda, the daughter of the late beloved King Henry, would be very unpopular. Better to just let her go on her way, right? Now this advice didn't make any sense. Henry spun a, like the whole rationale for letting Matilda go, but most of Stephen's supporters were dumbstruck. You want to let her go? That's the stupidest thing we've ever heard! Take her captive! End this war now! But Stephen, for some reason listened to Henry's crack-brained advice, and even agreed to escort Matilda to her brother's stronghold at Bristol. You know, the castle that was literally rebelling against Stephen at that very moment. Henry of Winchester was part of her escort, and apparently they had a few conversations in private. I don't know about you guys, but it sounds like Henry was already playing a double game. Big Brother didn't give me the Archbishop job, and this is my revenge. Matilda's appearance in England caused more nobles to come out in her support. Miles Fitzwalter, former constable to King Henry, had enormous lands in Wales and was a brilliant general. Brian Fitzcount was another loyal follower of Henry who rallied to his old liege's daughter. Soon Matilda had decent armies under her command and a solid power base in southwest England, and several skilled generals led by Robert of Gloucester. 
but it is clear that Matilda herself was the main strategist. Some older historians portray Robert of Gloucester as the rebellion's main leader, but this is the knee-jerk downplaying of any woman holding power. No, Matilda was calling the shots. It was her cause and her iron will that kept the war going. She, honestly much more than Stephen, was the true heir of the conqueror. Matilda's landing started the war in earnest. Armies crisscrossed the landscape, laying siege to castles, fighting skirmishes, and devastating the countryside. Matilda controlled most of southwest England and most of Wales. Stephen controlled the southeast and the Channel ports. Northern England was still in a standoff with the Scots. And while England was coming apart at the seams, Joffrey Plantagenet continued his slow, steady conquest of Normandy. The year 1140 saw major combat around Wallingford Castle, Brian Fitzcount's stronghold in the Thames River Valley. Stephen tried to besiege it several times, and when that failed, he built two smaller forts nearby to serve as counter-castles. Stephen made the mistake of building one of these castles on consecrated church ground, and when Brian led a counterattack and destroyed both of the modern baileys, the chroniclers saw it as the will of God. Clearly such a disastrous calamity befell the king and his men in that place, for the reason that from a church there, that is to say a house of religion and prayer, he allowed a castle to be made and a home of blood and war to be raised up. Uh, Stephen never managed to take Wallingford Castle. It was the thorn in his side for the entire war. Just this very tough nut to crack sitting right next to London that he continually besieged and failed to take. The conflict already seemed like it was going to be a long war of attrition, a slow-moving game of long-term strategy. A very typical medieval war. The exception came in the year 1141, a year of absolute chaos, where the tides of war change so quickly and so often that it's honestly hard to keep track. This is when all the dramatic events of the war took place. Hold on tight. It started at the end of 1140, when Stephen, surprise surprise, pissed off someone important. The powerful Earl Ranulf of Chester had remained mostly neutral so far in the war, but Stephen became convinced that Ranulf was about to join Matilda. So around Christmas 1140, Stephen led an army to besiege Ranulf's stronghold at Lincoln Castle. This sudden attack on her previously neutral party caused Ranulf to not be neutral anymore and cost Stephen lots of support just when Matilda was at the peak of her popularity. Matilda decided this was a golden opportunity to strike a decisive blow. Robert of Gloucester gathered an army and marched rapidly towards Lincoln. Stephen found himself in a bad position, trapped between the castle he was besieging and the approaching army of his long-term rival Robert. He could lift the siege and withdrawal, or he could stand and fight. Most of his vassals suggested retreat, which was the smart thing to do, but Stephen decided to gamble everything on a battle. Medieval commanders only risked a battle because they were confident, desperate, or stupid, and at least in this case, Stephen was stupid. The Battle of Lincoln would be the second great battle of the Anarchy. The two armies squared up on February 2nd, 1141, the holy day known as Candlemas. Both sides numbered about a thousand men. Very small armies for such an important battle, but that's rule number three, armies were small. Infantry comprised the majority of both armies, but Robert, Matilda's brother and champion, had a large advantage in cavalry. Stephen donned his chainmail and marched out into the plain west of Lincoln. 
he deployed his army in three sections, what medieval chroniclers called battles, the precursor to our modern battalion. Stephen himself commanded the center, made up of infantry and dismounted knights. In any defensive battle, a knight was better off fighting on foot. You could attack on horseback, but it was much harder to defend that way. Stephen put his cavalry on the right, led by most of his high-ranking vassals. On Stephen's left were his mercenary infantry, Breton and Flemish spearmen commanded by his main lieutenant, the mercenary captain William of Ypres. Robert of Gloucester commanded his own cavalry in the center of his army, with his Welsh mercenaries on the right under Ranulf of Chester. The left wing was held by a group of knights only called the Disinherited, that is, those men who Stephen had deprived of their lands and titles at some point recently. Every Norman noble that Stephen was fighting that day, Robert, Ranulf, and the Disinherited, were previously loyal subjects that he had pissed off somewhere along the line. Good job, Stevie boy. Way to rule. Robert of Gloucester gave a pre-battle speech to his army, riding along the line, chainmail clanking, his horse plowing through the dusting of snow on the ground. He reminded his men that they were Normans, he was the grandson of the conqueror, that he served the rightful queen, and that Stephen and all his followers were tainted with perjury for violating their promises to the late King Henry. He encouraged them to fight, and fight well. They obliged him. The Battle of Lincoln was short, dramatic and decisive. Both sides attacked each other's flanks, with Norman knights thudding back and forth over the snowy ground, arrows flying overhead to glance off armor or pierce a spearman's eye, spearmen advancing in phalanx to hold off the cavalry and smash into the opposing side. The battle swung back and forth. Robert's Welsh mercenaries routed and fled, but then the disinherited charged and routed Stephen's cavalry. Very few forces on earth could stand the full weight of a mounted Norman charge. Seeing the battle turning against him, the mercenary captain William of Ypres led his forces away from the battlefield, like they ain't paying me enough for this. This left Stephen isolated in the center as Robert's cavalry closed in. Even though he knew the battle was lost, Stephen fought like a monster. He fought on foot in full chainmail, swinging an enormous battle axe and keeping his foes at bay. The chroniclers describe this weapon specifically as a Norse weapon, so I guess there was still some Viking blood left in the Normans after all. The chronicler Henry of Huntingdon describes this stage of the Battle of Lincoln. You would have seen the dread sight of war all round the royal force, sparks leaping up from the clash of helmets and swords, the fearful hissing of arrows and the terrifying shouts re-echoed from the hills and from the city walls. Attacking the royal squadron with a cavalry charge, they killed some, threw others to the ground, and carried off others as captives. No pause or respite was given them, except in the area where the mighty king was standing, his enemies trembling at the incomparable ferocity of the blows he struck. What's funny is that Henry of Huntington, as a chronicler, is famously hostile towards Stephen, but even he's like, that dude was a champ. <laughs> Stephen was eventually forced to the ground, disarmed, and taken prisoner. As he was led away, he grumbled about this being the punishment of God for his sins, especially his mistreatment of the bishops. The Bible specifically enjoins people from laying hands on the Lord's anointed. And like I said, if battle was an invitation for God's judgment, better make sure you didn't make God mad lately. Robert took the captive king to Gloucester, where he came face to face with his arch-nemesis. 
It was the first time Stephen and Matilda had laid eyes on each other since the war began, and you have to imagine that Matilda talked some smack. Oh, hey, cousin. Look how the turntables have turned. You thought you could just take my stuff. You come at the Empress you best not miss. Or, you know, something like that. The Battle of Lincoln is another great example of why medieval generals usually didn't risk battle. Stephen didn't have to fight a battle. He could have retreated. He should have retreated. He had gambled everything and lost it in a single morning, and now he was a prisoner. With her rival locked away in Bristol Castle, Matilda was finally poised to claim her father's inheritance, her birthright, her son's birthright. Many of Stephen's former allies switched sides to Matilda. Even his own brother, Henry Bishop of Winchester, who he really shouldn't have made angry earlier. Henry made a proclamation to the whole kingdom, chastising Stephen for his sins and confirming Matilda as her father's rightful heir. Matilda headed for London to arrange for her coronation, the final step in reclaiming her throne. After years of fighting and hardship and planning and toil, she had won. But then, the Wheel of Fortune turned again. And the reason was good old-fashioned misogyny. It sounds like Matilda got a little bit cocky, a little bit careless. The medieval chroniclers describe her as behaving after Lincoln with arrogance, haughtiness, a cruel and condescending demeanor. She pissed off Henry Bishop of Winchester when she turned down his candidate for the Bishopric of Durham. She refused to defer to the wishes of her former allies, who expected respect and gratitude, but found her a little distant. She angered the people of London by demanding money and refusing to listen to their protests. And when Stephen's allies approached her with a compromise peace treaty, the Empress turned them down. None of this would have been unusual coming from a male ruler. But it was different. Reading between the lines, Matilda was behaving the way she had seen other strong rulers behave. Confident and domineering and ruthless, like her father, like her grandfather the Conqueror, like her late husband, Holy Roman Emperor Henry V, like a king. But the same behavior that was admirable coming from a man rubbed a lot of people the wrong way coming from a woman. They probably would have called her, you know, bossy. Guys, this wasn't fair. You and I know it wasn't fair. But that didn't matter. Matilda was wielding power in a male fashion and not acting shy about it. She had every right to do so, but it wasn't the smart thing to do. At this point, she was so close, she should have played it cool, kept behaving sort of womanly as much as she needed to until she was seated on the throne. She shouldn't have counted her chickens because before they hatched because she wasn't on the throne yet. She could choose to be right or she could choose to be smart. Matilda chose to be right, and her victory was about to unravel at the hands of another strong medieval woman, Stephen's wife, Queen Matilda of Boulogne. Yes, Matilda versus Matilda. I told you, I warned you guys, it would get confusing. Just to be clear, our Matilda is Empress Matilda. Stephen's wife, Matilda, is Queen Matilda of Boulogne. Just to tell them apart, Empress Matilda, Queen Matilda. Queen Matilda of Boulogne honestly deserved better than Stephen. She had the same iron will as Empress Matilda, but she was smart about it. 
she was careful to conform to gender roles, fighting on behalf of her husband, very clearly not for me, for my husband. She was acting meek and demure and, you know, gracious, even as she gathered armies and called in allies. Empress Matilda demanded people's loyalty. Queen Matilda begged for their loyalty. Oh, sir, please help me. Queen Matilda offered an acceptable exercise of female power to contrast with Empress Matilda, and soon lots of English nobles were defecting back to her side, I mean Stephen's side. Empress Matilda's fortune finally turned on June 24, 1141. Just as she was about to sit down for a feast, the people of London rioted against her rule and attacked Westminster Palace. Her demands for more money from the city's coffers and Queen Matilda's careful diplomacy with the town's top officials had sent them over the edge. The mob swarmed into the hall with torches and pitchforks, overturning tables full of food and running through the building, looking for that bossy woman. Matilda escaped literally seconds ahead of the rampaging mob, grabbing a horse and riding away from London at full speed. Only hours behind her, Queen Matilda of Boulogne re-entered the city to wild acclaim, thanking the people graciously and begging her allies to help free her poor mistreated husband from his dark imprisonment. I'm just a weak woman, I need your help. The Damsel in Distress Act worked where girl power hadn't. I do gotta point out how odd it is that in a period so dominated by male authority, two armies led by two very different women were making the decisive moves of the anarchy. Empress Matilda had seen defeat snatched from the jaws of victory. The people of London had rejected her, the Anglo-Norman nobility had broken their promises a second time, and Henry Bishop of Winchester decided that God had changed his mind once again. Forget what I said a couple of weeks ago, God is on Stephen's side now. Yes, yeah, so don't ever pick this guy for a soccer game. As soon as you're down a point or two, he's switching teams. By September 1141, Empress Matilda was trapped in Winchester, besieged by Matilda of Boulogne's large army of mercenaries. The Empress had no choice but to try and escape. On September 14, 1141, Robert of Gloucester broke the encirclement, leading the attack and paving the way for his sister's flight. Matilda rode 40 miles at breakneck speed, escaping by the skin of her teeth. She arrived at Gloucester Castle half-dead, almost paralyzed with fatigue, before she learned the bad news. Robert and her loyal knights had fought a desperate rearguard action to ensure her escape, a running fight through the muddy trails of southern England that has been called the Route of Winchester. And in the process, Robert himself had been run down and captured. The Empress Matilda had been so close to victory but her own political mistakes and the brilliant leadership of Queen Matilda had undone everything she had achieved since the Battle of Lincoln. Empress Matilda still held Stephen, her ultimate trump card, but now Queen Matilda held Robert, her brother, her greatest general, her most loyal champion. Neither one could really continue the war without getting their boys back. So in late 1141, the two Matildas agreed to an exchange of prisoners. Stephen was set free to return to his wife and take up his throne as king. And dang it, Stephen, you better get her something really nice for Christmas this year. You better, like, treat that woman right. She saved your freaking throne. Robert of Gloucester returned to lead his sister's armies. After all the trials and tribulations of 1141, a king captured, an empress almost killed by a lynch mob, all this maneuver and scheming and battle, 
everything was back where it had been at the beginning of the year. It was like Lincoln, London, and Winchester had never happened. Each side had come within a hair of total victory during 1141. If Stephen had been a little smarter, if Matilda had been a little nicer, if Stephen hadn't married a woman with twice the backbone he had, if Matilda hadn't made her fabulous escape from Winchester, the war could have ended. But 1141 was the decisive year of the struggle between Stephen and Matilda. It was decisive not because it meant that either side would win or lose. It just meant that the war would go on and on. Year after year, a catastrophic war of attrition that drove England into ruin, divided between the warring descendants of William the Conqueror. Chaos of 1141 left both sides of the anarchy exhausted, reeling, determined to keep up the fight, but no longer willing to risk a major battle. Most of the Anglo-Norman nobility still held to Stephen, but they didn't really like him or respect him, they just saw him as the least bad option. Matilda had all her loyal followers, but gaining and then losing her triumph so quickly had hurt morale. After all the crazy garbage that had happened in 1141, absolute victory for either side was never farther away. Very briefly, in 1142, it seemed like Stephen might finally manage to win this thing after all. After spending most of the summer sick, he came back strong, capturing several important castles and laying siege to Oxford. Oxford wouldn't have been that important, except that Empress Matilda was inside it. She had been using it as her headquarters. Stephen had been dumb enough to let Matilda slip through his grasp before, but he had her this time. Matilda's grandfather had captured Oxford way back during the Norman Conquest, and he had turned it into a powerful fortress, complete with a deep moat and high walls and multiple towers. But even this formidable castle could only hold so much food. It was doomed if the siege went, lo went on long enough. Robert of Gloucester had gone to Normandy to help Joffrey Plantagenet wrap that campaign up, so he couldn't come to his sister's rescue in time. By early December, snow covered the ground and food was running out inside Oxford. The besiegers were nearly freezing too, but Stephen held on, long past the campaigning season, with his own army weakening, determined to end the war. After three months and three days of siege, Stephen was about to capture Matilda for Christmas. But as I've said, this was the Empress Matilda and she was a baller. She was not ready to give up yet. One night, under cover of darkness, Matilda climbed down the castle wall, escorted by only three of her most loyal knights. Matilda was dressed in a bright white cloak to camouflage herself against the snow. She fled across the bleak winter landscape, crossing the frozen river Isis on foot. She slipped right through Stephen's encircling army, hiding in dishes and bushes while knights passed by, creeping past the sentries in the gloom. Matilda and her companions made the 13 miles to Wallingford Castle undetected, slipping right out of Stephen's fingers. Remember, Wallingford's the castle that Stephen could never take no matter what he did, so there wasn't a safer place for Matilda for Christmas 1142. 
Matilda's escape was so daring that even her enemies were like, dang. Even the chroniclers who are generally negative towards Matilda have nothing but good things to say about this escape. What was the evident sign of a miracle? She crossed dry-footed without wetting her clothes at all. The very waters that had risen above the heads of the king and his men when they were going to storm the town and through the king's pickets, which everywhere were breaking the silence of the night with the blaring of trumpeters or the cries of men shouting loudly, without anyone at all knowing. Robert of Gloucester returned from Normandy with reinforcements to keep the war going, and a special guest that Matilda hadn't seen in a very long time, her eldest son, the nine-year-old Henry. Again, I keep being reminded that this is a family drama. Imagine this movie scene. The 40-year-old Matilda, wrapped in a big cloak, still recovering from her frozen escape, grumbling to Brian Fitzcount about finding more money to repair fortresses and stuff, and then Robert comes in. Matilda runs up to embrace her brother, glad he's back, and then stops and stares at the small figure he's brought with him, the son she hadn't seen in almost five years. 1142 marked a major shift in Matilda's strategy. Her failure to win over the nobility and the church, and most of all her rejection by the people of London, made her position clear. As much as it must have hurt to do so, Matilda gave up on seeking the throne for herself. It was clear that England was just not ready for a female to ruler to rule in her own name. But the appearance of her son reminded her that she, was some, she had something else to fight for. Even if she couldn't win the war for herself, she could win the war for Henry. We gotta give Henry a nickname, because there are already 30 other Henrys in the story. For much of his life, Henry would be referred to as Fitz Empress, son of the Empress. After all, it was his mother's claims to England and Normandy that defined him. The Anarchy became a war of attrition, a war of castles being besieged and relieved, a war of long-term planning and careful coordination, a war marked as much by politics and negotiation, several nobles switching sides back and forth, as by combat. There were no more big battles. None. Too much of a risk. Instead, the war went on year after year, as both Stephen and Matilda became entrenched in their respective power bases in southwest and southeast England, unwilling to give up, but unable to win. There were near misses here and there, in July 1143, Stephen was laying siege to Salisbury when Robert of Gloucester came barreling in like a bat out of hell, scattering the army and almost capturing Stephen a second time. But all these near misses, stuff like that, never produced permanent results. And in the meantime, England suffered horribly. I focused a lot in this episode on the cut and thrust narrative between all these noble figures, but at the bottom of this war, the people were suffering. With England divided, lots of local nobles and knights were basically out of control. They used the lack of central authority to build their own castles, stake their own claims, pillage and ravage the landscape as they pleased. Outside of like the immediate area of Matilda and Stephen's face-off, it truly was an anarchy because no one really had control. King Henry had had laws against building castles without royal permission because of the danger this posed to royal authority. Illegal castles were called adulterine castles. Like, you can't have that. That's I didn't give you the permit to build that castle. Tear it down. Think of that as castle control. Well, it's the anarchy, boys. If 
Matilda won't give you a permit, go to Stephen. If Stephen won't give you a permit, just build it anyway. Castles are legal again. The number of castles in England ballooned. There may have been over a thousand by the end of the war. Some of these were within freaking sight of each other. Like, there are still surviving castle foundations in the Anarchy that are clearly visible, have clear lines of sight. What this meant was that every ten-pot knight with the slapped-together Mott and Bailey was now an absolute, uncontrolled menace to everything in his immediate vicinity. This is what the term robber baron comes from originally, before it became applied to capitalists in the 19th century. Outside the castles, gangs of unpaid mercenaries roamed the land, ravaging and raping the countryside. Every country, every bit of land that's close to one of these crazy adulterine castles with some hopped-up knight who just wants to plunder things, they're helpless. Who's going to stop this guy? The disintegration of central authority, the lack of royal prestige, the constant sieges and armies marching through and burning and pillaging and destruction of the landscape nearly ruined England. In some areas, it was an out-and-out demographic catastrophe. And no one knew this better than the chroniclers. The medieval chroniclers, the writers I keep referencing, dudes like Orderic Fatalis and Henry of Huntington, these are the only guys who were really writing the history of this period. They were almost all Catholic clergy. The clergy were the literate class, much better read and educated than the nobility, the ones who actually felt like they had a responsibility to write and record what was going on. This came true with certain biases, a certain way of seeing the world. We're getting the clergy's perspective on most of this history. But the clergy also had more of a common focus, like they were up much closer to the ground. They saw the common people suffering more than the nobility would have. They saw how ruinous the war was to the average Englishman. There is a long famous passage from the Peterborough Chronicle, which is a usually very formal and dry chronicle, but when it talks about the anarchy, it explodes into anguish. I'm only going to quote some of this. They greatly oppressed the wretched men of the land with castle work. Then when the castles were made, they filled them with devils and evil men. Then both by night and by day they seized those men whom they imagined had any wealth, common men and women, and put them in prison to get their gold and silver, and tortured them with unspeakable tortures, for no martyrs were ever tortured as they were. The Chronicler continued, I do not know, nor can I tell, all the horrors, nor all the tortures that they did to wretched men in this land, and it lasted the nineteen years while Stephen was king, and it always grew worse and worse. They laid attacks upon the villages time and again. Then, when the wretched men had no more to give, they robbed and burned all the villages, so that you could well go a whole day's journey and never find anyone occupying a village or land tilled. Wherever men tilled, the earth bore no corn because the land was all done for by such doings. And they said openly that Christ and his saints slept. That's one of the most famous quotes in English school books about the anarchy. The time when Christ and his saints slept. God has abandoned us. And it must have seemed true. The civil war seemed unending year after year. A catastrophe that showed no signs of slowing down after such a long period of peace and prosperity under Henry I. It's no wonder that they talked about it like it was the end of the world. Some blame Stephen for stealing the throne. Some blame Matilda for starting the war to reclaim it. 
Some blamed Robert or Joffrey or David or even old King Henry himself for rigging this whole thing to explode. But most people seem to believe that this was God's will, God's punishment on the English for their sins. This was an age when people believed fervently in the hand of God in everyday life, that he was actively influencing events on earth. He changed the outcomes of battles, caused births and deaths, decided the fate of nations. He performed miracles and he bestowed curses. It was no wonder people looked to God for salvation, since only God could have allowed any of this to happen, and there had to be a reason for it, and he would fix it in his time. It was a mindset that we might not always understand in the modern world. We might find it ignorant or even abhorrent, but it helped people make sense of all the stuff that was happening to them and to their country. They really believed it. As the anarchy continued, the battle lines in England barely shifted. But the situation was different in Normandy. By 1144, Geoffrey Plantagenet, Matilda's less than beloved husband, had finally conquered William the Conqueror's old domain and had himself named Duke, though only until his son Henry Fitz Empress came of age and took the duchy in his own right. Many of the original actors in the drama were dying off one by one. Matilda lost her two greatest generals when Miles Fitzwalter died in 1142, and worst of all, the mighty Robert of Gloucester passed away in 1147. Without her best generals, and especially the support of her loyal and beloved brother, Matilda returned to Normandy in 1148, ten years after arriving in England. Her supporters still held most of southwest England and Wales, and continued to fight on her behalf, and increasingly now, on the behalf of the young prince, Henry Fitz Empress. Stephen failed to take advantage of Matilda's return to Normandy, and he continued to lose friends and influence people badly. In 1148, he tried to make one of his nephews the Bishop of Lincoln, such a blatant act of nepotism that Pope Eugenius III almost excommunicated Stephen. This cost him dearly, since the Pope refused to recognize Stephen's children as the legitimate heirs to the throne. Stephen's legitimacy and respect continued to decline, and he lost a lot of what fight he had left when his wife Matilda of Boulogne died in 1152. She had always had more backbone than him anyway. And as Stephen's star fell, a new star was on the rise. By 1149, Henry Fitz Empress was 16 years old, a charismatic, handsome youth who seemed to shine with energy, a stark contrast to the tired, worn-out warriors of his parents' generation. In 1149, he traveled to Scotland to be knighted by his great-uncle King David I, and in 1150, his father formally ceded him the title Duke of Normandy. The Normans were enthusiastic and overawed by their romantic young warrior. He seemed to be the fulfillment of all their hopes, representing a possible end to the turmoil. Honestly, to lots of people, and this was noted several times, Henry seemed like the pr tragic young prince, William Aetheling, born again. Tw almost 30 years after the White Ship disaster, it was like all that hope for the future and for peace had been reborn in Matilda's son, Henry Fitz Empress. In 1151, Geoffrey Plantagenet died, leaving his son as Duke of Anjou. You have to wonder how Matilda felt. Matilda never liked Geoffrey. She was probably like, oh no. Anyway. 
A few months later, Henry married the eligible heiress, Eleanor of Aquitaine, bringing the enormous stretch of southwestern France under his control as well. So by now, Henry Fitz Empress controlled more of France by a long shot than the King of France. With this enormous power base, he decided to fulfill his mother's dream, cross over to England, and end the anarchy. On January 6th, 1153, Henry landed in England with 140 knights and 3,000 infantry. He led them on a lightning campaign, a massive jolt of adrenaline to a civil war that had lapsed into stalemate. He was brilliant and ruthless and daring, just like his grandfather and namesake, just like his great-grandfather the Conqueror. The contrast with Stephen, weak, tired, unpopular, could not have been clearer. Most of the Anglo-Norman nobles were awed by the young prince, and some of Stephen's leading supporters openly prepared to switch sides. It all came to a head in August 1153, when Henry arrived with a large army to confront Stephen outside the untakeable Wallingford Castle. The knights and infantry and archers lined up on either side, preparing themselves for an epic showdown, the climactic struggle that would determine the fate of England. But the Battle of Wallingford was one of history's great battles that never happened. Because the two armies were getting ready to fight, they looked at each other, they were like, nah, no, screw this. They went to their respective sovereigns to demand peace. Like, your majesty, your grace, whatever. 18 years of this lunacy is enough. No one really wants to fight this battle. England is in ruins. Everything has gone to hell. We demand that you figure this out right here, right now. Like... These are the barons saying this. In what was supposed to be the climactic battle of the anarchy, it was the nobility who had had enough. The nobility who didn't want to risk a battle. We see that the kings and the dukes in this, in this time period were really only as powerful as their barons let them be. Henry and Stephen met on the field of Wallingford and hashed out a treaty. A treaty that finally ended the anarchy. The deal was simple. Stephen would keep the throne until he died, and adopt Henry Fitz Empress, his rival Matilda's son, as his heir. So when Stephen died, Henry would become king. The chroniclers recorded, So it was arranged and firmly settled that arms should finally be laid down and peace restored everywhere in the kingdom, the new castles demolished, the disinherited restored to their own, and laws and enactments made binding on all according to the ancient fashion. Of course, there was one tiny problem. Stephen had a son, Eustace, who was disinherited by this peace deal. Like, Eustace is hanging out for the entire anarchy thinking he's going to become king when Stephen dies, and Stephen Stephen's like, hey, sorry champ, uh, uh, I adopted Henry, so he's going to take over instead. Sucks. Eustace was like, Dad, what the hell? But no one seemed to like Eustace very much. He threw a temper tantrum, rode off, attacked an abbey, and stole some treasures from the monks, then died from choking on his food literally hours later, a death that most saw as the punishment of God for attacking the abbey. But as we all know, there are lots of weirder ways to die in medieval Europe. Stephen toured the kingdom with Henry, showing everyone that the anarchy was over, the civil war was at an end, that the house of the conqueror was once more reunited. Notably absent was Matilda, who was managing Normandy in Henry's absence and didn't get to see his triumph. Only a little while later, 
On October 25th, 1154, Stephen suddenly died. It had been 34 years since his binge drinking had saved him from the white ship. The Norman chronicler Wace summed up his reign. Stephen never had peace and never deserved to have any, for he accepted bad advice and bad advice harmed him. The historical consensus seems to be that Stephen was a good general, but a bad ruler and a truly garbage politician. He and England would have been better off if he had never touched the throne. But astonishingly, Stephen's death, for the first time in a long time, did not result in a succession crisis. Nobody had the energy for that garbage. Henry Fitz Empress came over to England without any fuss, and on December 19, 1154, he was crowned King Henry II. The crown he wore at his coronation was his mother's, from her time as Holy Roman Empress. Among his first moves were to order all the illegal castles destroyed and reclaim northern England from the Scots. Everything was to go back to how it had been in 1135, when his grandfather had left England in peace and order. Henry II would rule for 35 years, a reign remembered as one of peace and prosperity, far from the darkness of the anarchy. He was considered a model medieval king, an energetic and ruthless ruler, a true heir to his grandfather, King Henry I. Also like Stephen, though, he had his own share of uh, bishop problems. There's this whole thing with Thomas Becket, the Archbishop of Canterbury, but that's a whole other story. Five of Henry's children became kings or queens, including his talented son Richard, known to history as Richard the Lionheart. One of his daughters was named, you guessed it, Matilda Drink. Henry was everything William Aetheling should have been, if not for that dark, fateful night when the white ship foundered in the English Channel. The House of Normandy, the House of the Conqueror, ended with Stephen. Historians often refer to Henry's new dynasty as the Angevins, and his enormous regime in England, and also ruling over half of France, as the Angevin Empire. But Henry's dynasty is also remembered by the flower his father had worn, the bright yellow broom known as the Plantagenet. The House of Plantagenet would rule England for the next three centuries, until it fell apart in an even bloodier and deadlier civil war, the Wars of the Roses, starting in the 1450s. But maybe that's a story for another day, or series. That would be a series, probably. The Empress Matilda, as she continued to call herself, lived for another decade and a half. She served as her son's closest political and military advisor, and he always listened to her words even when he didn't like them. Like King Henry II, one of the most powerful monarchs in medieval history, listened to Mama. After all, Mama had more political and military experience than anyone else in his court. She also managed Normandy for her son whenever he was in England. Matilda finally passed away in 1167, at the age of 65. Was she ever bitter or upset about the fact that she never got to rule in her own name? That Stephen held the throne for all of the anarchy and only at his death could her son succeed? She might have been upset, but she doesn't seem to have shown it. Because I think she realized that she had won. She never got to sit on the throne, no. But her son did. Matilda's long and bitter struggle ensured that her son gained the inheritance that she never could. She was the only reason he ever became King Henry II. 
many, many parents see their children as their greatest triumphs. And if this holds true for Matilda, she won the greatest victory of all. After all, it was her descendants, not Stephen's, who have ruled England ever since 1154, right down to the present. Every monarch of England has been one of Matilda's descendants. Her war had ensured that it was her line that survived. And if her ideas about a woman's right to rule were before her time, she paved the way for her descendants, like Elizabeth I, Victoria, and Elizabeth II, to rule in their own names. She established a precedent they could work with. Matilda walked so they could run. Her courage, her determination, her iron will, worthy of her Norman heritage, had made it all possible. The throne of England is still held to this day by the descendants of the House of Matilda the Conqueror. So what does it all mean, James? What's the point? Why should I care? Well, guys, that was a rollicking romp through the Middle Ages, and what a journey it was. We met all kinds of crazy people, and only half of them were named Matilda. The other half were named Henry or Robert, but hey, there was only one Stephen, and you have no idea how glad I am about that. First off, I said at the beginning of the episode that it was inspired by House of the Dragon, the real-life historical events that House of the Dragon is based on. Now, I didn't try to draw too many overt parallels because odds are y'all didn't watch the show. But if you did, you can probably see where the inspiration comes from. Patty Considine's character, King Viserys, is pretty blatantly an analog to King Henry, although Viserys in the show is a much weaker character than Henry was in real life. And his daughter Rhaenyra is an analog of Empress Matilda, though Matilda didn't bang her uncle. Oh, spoiler alert for the first couple episodes of House of the Dragon, you can just skip ahead like two minutes if you don't want to hear this. The White Ship Disaster is represented by Viserys' wife and son dying tragically in childbirth in episode one, which, okay, well, I guess that works, but the White Ship was so much more dramatic that they honestly should have just done that. Make it a dragon crash, I don't care. I guess they blew their CGI budget on the dragons. There are other bits and pieces of the Anarchy story throughout House of the Dragon, but it is a loose analogy. Like, the story doesn't match one for one to each event. Lots of characters don't really have equivalents between the historical story and the fictional story. But the broader storyline is there. King loses his son, names his daughter as his heir, the nobles don't accept her. Boom, civil war. The Game of Thrones universe is, of course, fantasy. But I see a lot of folks out there learning history, or at least a version of history, from the fantasy media they consume. And that includes looking at the Westeros ideas of gender, warfare, society, economics, and culture. All the stuff that seems very based on medieval history, and sometimes taking those as accurate representations of the Middle Ages. And I'll tell you, nah. Don't get me wrong, I love the series. It's a fantastic series that I recommend, just not for your kids. It's not PG-13, but it's not history. One thing I will give the Game of Thrones universe credit for is that it helps people see the Middle Ages in a new light, that it was full of colorful, vibrant, often very intelligent personalities, that women could wield enormous power both directly and indirectly, that it wasn't just a dark age full of ignorance and stupidity, 
And that war is always devastating and always worse to the people caught beneath its wheels. The vanity and jealousy and greed of the powerful can do terrible damage to the common folk of the land. Which is, of course, no less true in 2023 than it was in 1141. That much, at least, Game of Thrones gets right. L.P. Hartley began his 1953 novel, The Go-Between, with a saying that has always hit me, and I always have to remind myself. This go- the saying goes, The past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Medieval people lived in such a different world than us, not just a physical world, but a mental world, an intellectual and emotional world, that they can often seem baffling, incomprehensible, almost alien. What they think and how they act just doesn't make a lot of sense to us. For a long time, military historians describe medieval warfare as thoughtless, stupid, and unimaginative, with no good generals or real tactics or real understanding of the art of war. Especially when it came to battle, later historians tended to see battle as the be-all, end-all of war. In the lack of battles in medieval warfare, they thought that just meant that their commanders weren't very good. This isn't true, of course. Medieval soldiers and commanders could be very skilled, often brilliant. Uh, We see Stephen and Robert of Gloucester in this episode being excellent battlefield commanders. But they were just operating in a material and social context that later historians didn't understand. Everything medieval people did made sense to them, even if we don't grasp it. Add in how they saw religion and God and his, his divine will on earth, how they saw class and nobility, how they saw political authority and the church and the laws of war and peace, this crazy, fascinating blend of superstition and pragmatism. We may not understand, but we shouldn't judge, because someday someone will judge us, and you probably won't like what they say. And of course, I want to remind you that they were human. The past is a foreign country, but foreign countries are full of people just like us. They weren't so different after all. So much of this story revolves around a father's love for his children, a mother's love for her son, a wife's love for her husband, a brother's love for his sister. Human emotions, human feelings that drove the destinies of nations, that sent kingdoms and realms to war and anarchy. The civil war between Stephen and Matilda wasn't just a military struggle, but a personal struggle, an inheritance dispute, a family drama that nearly ruined England for almost 20 years. So I'll just leave you with the radical notion that maybe this kind of crap is why we stopped having monarchies. Family dramas and inheritance disputes are much more boring, but much less bloody, when they're fought in Facebook comment sections and not on the battlefield. Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the Norman soap opera and learned something about medieval warfare along the way. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it, especially if you need their knights on your side for next year's campaign. If you don't, tell your enemies. Just maybe don't let them go free if you have them surrounded, because then everybody gets mad at you. If you want to read some writings I've done other medieval wars, including the Wars of the Roses, it's all on my website at unknownsoldierspodcast.com. If you want to contribute to my book fund, I have a donate button there as well. I am on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod, or just drop me a line at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. Just a reminder that I am now on a month-to-month schedule, so I will see you guys in late March for our next episode. Catch you then, only here, on Unknown Soldiers. 